John chapter 2, starting from verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites for, of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, although the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there, stayed there for a few days. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. I don't know what kind of weddings you guys have been to. Uh, I've been to quite a few myself. Uh, this is a picture of my wife and I at our wedding uh, just over 11 years ago. There were quite a few people there. Uh, basically my church, her church, uh, my extended family has about like 50 odd people, uh, so there are quite a few there. So I don't know, I've been to like maybe some Western weddings, I've also been to Chinese weddings, I've been to Filipino weddings, anyone been to a Filipino wedding? Uh, so what happens, you go to reception and everyone's eating, and then the MC will come up and say, um, uh, the cousin of the bride is going to now sing, you know, my heart will go on. And then she'll be like, it's dramatic uh, song, and then a few minutes later, oh, now the second cousin of the groom is going to sing Bruno Mars, and, and it turns out they're like top 50 you know, Australian Idol contestant. Uh, that's what happens at Filipino weddings. Uh, but I don't know what kind of weddings you've been to. I hear like Singaporean weddings, everyone has to come to the reception. In Singapore. That's what I was told. Like, everyone has to be there. And so w- whichever culture you are part of and what kind of weddings you've been to, the consistent thing there is that the community is at the wedding, right? It's not really a wedding when it's a bride and a groom and the celebrant. That's, that's a shotgun wedding. It's not really a wedding, is it? You need people there to celebrate with you. That's the whole thing about wedding. It's about community. Your family, your friends, your workmates, church friends, other church friends, uh, tutoring friends, whoever it is. Right? Everyone has to be there to celebrate with you. But then when you bring everyone together, it's a high-stakes event, right? Because if, if the wedding is bad, you're going to lose reputation, right? People came expecting uh, a solid wedding. Uh, they're expecting, you know, you're expecting the photographers, the videographers, the cake. Everything's got to be good. That's why there's so much pressure on the bride and groom to have a good wedding. Not that they intentionally do that, but it's because... Everyone is there. If it's done poorly, if, say, there's not enough wine, those are bad things, and it's bad for your reputation. 
And when you take a hit to your reputation, it's difficult to mend. Uh, and so we're looking at uh, John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And maybe you've heard it preached a few times. Uh, I've heard it preached many times, and every time it's completely different. And so probably this is another completely different uh, sermon you will hear. But we're going to be thinking about this idea of reputation. I was actually me and my wife. Uh, we didn't want to show our face because, um, yeah, we look a lot younger and better then. Uh, so first of all, it's in your outlines there. So firstly, you want to think about the impending loss of reputation that's in the story. Secondly, Mary's request, basically, to keep their reputation. And then thirdly, that Jesus is going to restore the reputation of the family. So we're going to be working through one, two, three, uh, and then fourthly, we'll end up in our application. So as we look at verses one to three, uh, we find that in verse three, Mary presents the problem to Jesus and says, they don't have any wine. Uh, and so for many of us uh, growing up as Christians or Asian Christians in particular, that's not a big problem because we mainly drink lemon, lime and bitters uh, at weddings. But imagine, yeah, what if they run out of lemon, lime and bitters? What happens when they run out of drinks? What kind of a wedding would it be if they just served water? But something's not quite right there. Uh, maybe um, you go to Chinese weddings and there are banquets and you think, well, what kind of seafood will there be? And if they didn't serve lobster, well... That's a bit disappointing, right? And so if you don't have wine at these weddings in first century uh, Israel, it's actually a big deal. It's not just a small thing. The family is going to face uh, a loss of reputation, not just the bride and the groom, but their whole families. I mean, imagine you hear about this wedding. And so it's, I don't know, Tom and Mary, they're getting married. And that's, it's their wedding where they run out of wine. And Tom's got a younger sister, or Mary's got a younger brother who's single. Would your family want to marry into that family? Would you marry the younger sibling? Because, I mean, the wedding's going to be the same, right? At your reception, you're going to run out of wine. Maybe this time you're going to run out of something, right? It's not a family you want to be associated with. But even if you love that person, your family might not be ready to accept that relational hit, that you're associated with with Tom and Mary's family. And so just by association, you experience a loss of reputation as well, just because you're a part of them. And what about their children and their children's children? Who's going to live down a wedding where they ran out of wine? And so uh, this thing doesn't just affect this couple, it affects their family and generations from this point on. And so when Mary says they've run out of wine, it's a big deal. Uh, And so when we think about this passage, we need to be thinking about Uh, this category of language, shame, honor, reputation, face. Okay, that's what's going on in this passage. Uh, And I think uh, for many of us, we come from Asian backgrounds. Those are familiar words and something like in our family we kind of talk about and, you know, maybe you get frustrated with your parents, say, oh, why do you bother with this? And they, oh, you know, but, you know, I'll lose face with this, and maybe we've grown up in Australia and say, ah, oh, who, who cares about that? And so we, we're not concerned about that. Or maybe you don't really come from an Asian background, but we live in Australia, and what bigger community is there in the world today than the internet and social media? Where there's community, there's chance for honour and shame. And so if you're online, there's a huge chance of experiencing shame. That's what cyberbullying is basically about now, that you shame someone. Uh, and so we, we're growing into a culture, even in the West, where shame is a big part of our life. 
Uh, and so uh, John chapter 2 uh, is helping us understand shame and what Jesus has to do with shame. If we look at verses 4 and 5, uh, we read there, uh, Jesus says to his mother, What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked, My hour has not yet come. And you might look at that and you might think, Oh, that's a little bit uh, pretentious of him to say. But what Jesus is trying to say to his mum, he's saying, Yeah, you're my mother, but I'm the Lord Jesus Christ. And right now, in this moment, you're a disciple of mine with the other disciples. He gets to do that because he's Jesus. And so he's going to teach, he's going to show something in this. He's not just going to perform a party trick, but he's actually teaching his disciples something. And so you read in verse 11, after it happens, Jesus performed the first sign in Cana of Galilee. He displayed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So they saw what was going on in this event, and they believed. Uh, so Jesus is teaching uh, even his mother in this moment. Now you notice in verse 5 that Mary just says to the servants, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. She does not say, oh, by the way, there's six very large jars there. Okay, fill them with water. No, she just says, oh, this is the problem, Jesus. There's not enough wine. You solve it somehow. You solve it somehow. And I think that's very applicable to us when it comes to prayer because I don't think that's how we pray. This is how we pray. We have a problem. Okay, let me think about this. All right, I've got a solution. I need this to happen. So step one, step two, step three. Okay, now I can pray to God and say, okay, God, here's a problem. Here's what I need you to do, God. Okay, step one, if you can do this for me. And then step two, once that works out, and this will happen. And then step three, ah, problem solved. And so I've got to pray because, well, I'm not all-powerful. You are. And so when we pray, we're basically asking God to rubber stamp our plans, right? Does that happen? Like maybe, uh, maybe we have a relative who is quite sick, and so we, our focus is to pray for the healing, which is a good thing, but maybe it's in God's plans to not heal them at this time. But often we come to God with our plans and our solutions, and we say, God, here's a problem, but here's my solution, and it would be good if you could just do it my way. But we see in this passage that marriage presents the problem. So maybe we ought to pray similarly sometimes and say, God, here is a problem and actually I don't know the solution. I'm not going to propose a solution, but here is how I demonstrate faith. This is how I demonstrate your sovereign power. You can do something about it. I don't know what it will be, but you do it. Uh, and so there may be a lesson from Mary's request here. And so we come to Jesus' solution. And so, yes, we find in verse 6, the six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus says, uh, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief servant. And they did. When the chief servant tasted the water, after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, Everyone sets out the fine wine first, then, after the people have drunk freely, the inferior, but you have kept the fine wine until now. And so we see here Jesus's, uh, his miracle in turning water into wine. 
and we notice here there are these these uh, these jars for Jewish purification. Uh, so in Jewish religion and practice, they understood that sin makes them unclean, and so there needs to be ways for them to be made clean. And so part of it was having these water jars where, where they could wash and become pure again uh, ceremonially. And so Jesus is basically saying, you know what? We don't need these jars for purification anymore because I'm here. When I go to the cross and I rise from the dead again, you will be made pure by my blood, not this water anymore. So now these jars can be repurposed. Uh, I don't know if you go to uh, hipster cafes or not, but uh, everyone's into reclaimed and uh, repurposed things. So things that have served their usefulness, like this jar, whatever it was for, but now we can put yogurt in it. Now we can put mason jars and put drinks in it. Right? We repurpose things because they're no longer of use to us. And so what Jesus basically is saying here is, we don't need this anymore. All these rituals and laws and all these things that could make you pure before God temporarily, we don't need it anymore because I'm here. I will provide the purification for you. So now we could just use it for wine. And that's what he does. And so in this process, uh, in this process, uh, it's not just this miracle that's happening, but Jesus is restoring honor to the family. So no one knows that they'd actually run out of wine. Uh, and so uh, incidentally, you notice that the names of the bride and groom are not mentioned because if they were mentioned, like they'd be shamed for eternity because everyone would know that was the wedding, right? But they're just anonymous characters. But you see here the... the um, the chief servant, he says, wow, this is like the best wine. Everyone else at their wedding brings the best wine first, get people drunk, so they don't even know what they drink anymore. Then you bring out the $5 bottles. But you guys, oh, you serve pretty good wine at the beginning. Now you're bringing out the pen folds and all the nice stuff. Wow, look at how opulent your family is. Look at how generous your family is. And no one is the wiser. And so everyone will go away from that wedding and say, wow, you remember this wedding? They said, the, look at how, how good was their wine. How good was the food? And so they went from a situation where it would have been disaster. For generations, people would have remembered that family. And so their reputation would have been in tatters. But through Jesus' miracle, actually, Jesus doesn't just restore their honor, but he increases it. That they're more honorable than they should be. And they've done nothing about it. They didn't even know, probably. They said, oh, wow, we, we serve good wine. That's part of the miracle. And so what happens uh, in this story is you go people who are uh, kind of ordinary, lose all their honor, basically, but are restored to a higher uh, place. Now, I don't know if you follow basketball or not, but you probably know that that's LeBron James. Uh, and that's a similar story for him. He came into the NBA uh, with a lot of hype around him and expectations. He went to his hometown team, the Cleveland Cavaliers, uh, and he played there for a while, became a star, but he never won a championship, but then he became basically a free agent. So uh, he could choose to go to any team in the league and for any money. Uh, so everyone's you know, wanting to know where he's going to go. Uh, and so the day he could make the decision, he had a TV special, The Decision, 
right? And he interviewed and was talking about, you know, how things, and then he finally declared, I'm taking my talents to South Beach, Miami, Florida. Uh, and then he also, they also announced that they were signing another player, and these three stars come out, and they're like yahooing about being, basically being childlike, right? It was the whole, the whole uh, event of the decision. People looked at it and said, he's just being a kid, he's being so childish, uh, and so suddenly, him, uh, LeBron James and his team became villains. He went from hero, not to zero, but actually hated right, by most of the NBA. Not just the Cleveland fans who were burning their, jerseys, their LeBron James jerseys, oh, we hate you. Uh, the owner of the team wrote a public letter saying, oh, we don't want you anymore. You didn't do anything for this city. And so he went to Miami. He won a couple of championships there. But all the, whole, the whole time, everyone was talking about how immature LeBron James was. Yeah, he's achieving these things, but he's a, he, he's a nobody. People did not respect him. He did not have a good reputation in the NBA community. But then, after his time in Miami, he had another decision to make. He was a free agent again, and he could go anywhere amongst 30 teams in the NBA. And then he went home to Cleveland. And then all the fans putting out the fire on the jerseys and putting it back on. Yeah, oh, we never doubted you. We never doubted you. Uh, the owner welcomes him back into the city. And this time there was no TV special, The Decision Part 2. He, he sort of quietly came back and he did write a letter and say, yeah, you know, I think I've been immature in the past and you know, I'm going to come back here and I want to win Cleveland a championship, which had never been done before. There's a little... Uh, kind of a, called a small market team. They've never won. I promise that we'll win a championship here. And he did. Uh, and the circumstances around which he did were pretty amazing. Uh, they went up against the Golden State Warriors with Steph Curry. Uh, that year, they were in the finals. It's a best of seven. You've got to win four games out of seven. And so the Cleveland's already down 3-1. Okay? One more loss, and that's it. But they win games five, they win game six, and they win game seven. And this is, you know, as the buzzer sounds, you can see on his face the, the relief, the, the, the promise being fulfilled. You could almost see him seeing people respecting him again after all he had done in the past, that suddenly, through this achievement, he will earn newfound respect. And he did. Even haters like myself say, wow, yeah, pretty impressive. You have to give him that. And so his reputation went from very high to very, very low. But through what he does here, that he's not the same. He's even better than he was before. And that's the same with Jesus. Right? When we see God becoming human, why would God enter into his creation, which is fallen and broken. Why would Jesus hang with lepers and sinners, people who were unclean? Jesus earns a reputation as a drunkard and a sluggard, and as a, uh, a drunkard and a uh, person who eats a lot, a glutton, right? And eats with tax collectors and sinners. That's what people were saying about Jesus. And then what happens when he goes to the cross? He's a common criminal. And so if the story ends there, he never rises from the dead, who's Jesus? 
a person of disrepute. Would, be, would that be the person your daughter would want to marry? I'm not sure I would want my, my daughter to marry that guy. But when he rises from the dead and he proves that all he said was saying is true, that when he rises from the dead, he's actually risen as the king. He's risen in glory and power. And he's now going to judge the living and the dead. In some way, he's actually of a higher status than when he came, if that were possible. That he came as God-man. He suffers the indignity uh, of a lost reputation. But it's not just restored, but it's increased. And that's the story of Jesus. And that's the story for Christians. That when you believe in the gospel, that's what happens to us as well. That we might be somewhere here, uh, that we're kind of ordinary, but we understand that in sin, yeah, we, in our sin we feel guilt, but we also feel shame. That our, our honour, our reputation is actually lost in our sin. And so we're, we're down here, we're enemies of God. But in God's grace, in God's mercy, he doesn't just restore us to what we were before, he now says, you're a son. He now says that you are a daughter of his, that you're in the family. You have an inheritance that you share with Jesus. That's a bit more than what I would have expected, right? And so this whole process is being of an ordinary status, that you go down and you lose your reputation because of what you've done, but it's restored even greater. Right? And that's the grace of God at work. But for LeBron James, it was all hard work. But for us, it's the grace of Jesus. For us, it's mercy and his love that enables that to happen. I didn't earn my reputation before God. God gives that to us before him. And so we need to think about us as Christians. Well, what does that mean? And I think for many of us uh, in our churches, you know, we're so familiar with dealing with guilt and, oh, I'm now innocent before Jesus, that we kind of lost a category in understanding the gospel. We, we don't really think a lot about shame and honour and reputation. We're kind of aware of that maybe from our Asian background and our heritage. Oh, there's a little... Yeah, uh, we talk about that in home and in our family. That's not part of my Christian identity. But then we read a passage like John chapter 2, which is talking about reputation and honour and shame. And then so we're kind of not sure what to do with it. And so we don't necessarily have the, um, the category of reputation, shame. We don't have the vocabulary. We may not even have the theology to handle it. But it's there, we're just not familiar with it. And when we're not familiar with it, we don't know what to do with it when it happens. Right? And so in a church, yeah, we sin, we know that, we confess sin to each other. But there's some sin, there's sin, and then there's sin, right? There's a sin where, you know, you feel guilty about, and okay, you've been taught enough that, yeah, Jesus takes away the guilt of it, and you're now declared innocent before him, and, oh, okay, I can confess that before God and I can confess that before um, my closest Christian friends. Yep. And that's okay, it's dealt with. I don't, I don't feel the pain of that anymore. But there's some sins that there's shame attached. 
you know, sexual sin. Uh, there's some sins that, yeah, I'm not sure I can really bring it up with people. Oh, I know that if I feel guilty about it, it's dealt with. But then it has a grip on us. It paralyzes us in a sense. And so we can confess some sins, but there's some sins I can't really confess. And then we still feel a little trapped. But unless we have a good understanding of shame and honor and what Jesus does to deal with it, when we understand that better, suddenly we're released from that paralysis. And we understand, yeah, Jesus does forgive even the shameful sins. And so I'm no longer ashamed to stand before God. I can stand before him clean. And then also I can stand before my brothers and sisters also clean. Yes, I have sinned but I don't have to feel the shame of it because Jesus takes the shame away. Right? And so, just as a, an example, when we think about what it means uh, looking around, not many of you are married, so if you've got a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you know, it happens in churches that boyfriends and girlfriends sleep together. We try not to make it happen, we teach about it, but it's sin, it happens. But what happens if one day that in doing that, the girlfriend gets pregnant. What would you do about that? Well, how, how would you handle that? Well, what would you do? And if we don't have a good, robust understanding of shame, honor, and what Jesus does for us, does for us we can't tell anyone because we're so ashamed of that. And, and so what could we do? You, there's no way you can leave it, right? And then so, well, we could uh, quickly get engaged and get married, right? But then people are like, well, you, people have suspicions about that, right? Or, or we could push it a bit later, but you know, people can count, right? Nine months. Uh, you know? And, and so you, you can't hide that. Those are realities in the world. You can't, you can't hide a baby. You can't hide a son from the world. And so it's going to happen. So people will know about it. And so what would you do? There are two options. You allow it to happen and you might, uh, I guess, get married. Or you could have an abortion. But oh, the Christians don't have abortions. But I wonder how many Christians, given those circumstances, might choose it. Because you're choosing, well, you could have an abortion. But I know how to deal with guilt, right? I know how to deal with guilt. And Jesus takes away so. I know this is a wrong decision, but we've already made the wrong decision before. So that would be easier to deal with than present before my family, my church community, and the world that, oh, okay, yeah, we were sleeping together before we got married. And I don't know what you might do, but I suspect some of us might actually choose the abortion route because it's easier to deal with guilt than to deal with shame, I think. Right? I'm not sure how you would feel. And so we need to have a good, robust category for shame and honor and reputation and how Jesus restores that so that when those kinds of situations come about, personally, we can deal with it better, but also as a church community, we can deal with it better. And so my hope is that as a church, that kind of like in this passage, as it's overflowing with wine, I think if you calculated the 20 or 3 the six jars with 20 or, three, 20 or 30 gallons. It's like 800 bottles of wine, right, of the best wine. Right? 
Imagine we could be overflowing as they were with wine, and we could be overflowing with grace in our church. That for a person who, not necessarily under those specific circumstances, but people who sin and experience the shame of their sin, but for them to have the confidence to say, actually, in my church, yeah, we can, we can deal with shame. And so I can confess it. I don't, you don't have to come up the front and confess to everyone, but to your closest friend, maybe even to your small group or whatever it is, that you can confess these shameful sins. Just like you can f- confess other sins. Oh, I can confess I've been feeling greedy. I can confess I've been coveting. Or I can't confess the sexual sin before them. But maybe we could, right? because we understand as a community that it's a safe place. Right? And as people confess, maybe you're on the other side and someone's confessing to you. Right? That you don't say, oh, Christians don't do that. Instead of a response like that, but to understand a passage like this and say, yeah, yeah, that would would be really shameful. But you know what? The gospel applies. Yes, the guilt is taken away and the shame is taken away. So you feel shameful before God, but God can even forgive that. And so that we might feel the boldness to even confess those sins. What if we could be a church that would allow that? And that we have a community of people who are not paralyzed by the power of shame. That understanding in the gospel, it releases us. I was preaching this uh, just uh, to the congregation before, and someone came across and said, oh, well, you're, you're talking about this you know, freedom from the shame. This mainly applies to Christians, right? I'm like, well, yeah, that's the gospel. If you're a person who's not a Christian, how do you undo shame? For people who have gone through you know, social media shame, often they just fall into depression because they don't know what to do. There are books, so you've been shamed publicly. We're not, we don't necessarily have the categories or the ways to deal with shame because once you've been shamed, what can you do? You can work hard to improve your reputation, but what if that's not good enough? But the gospel says you can have it restored through faith in Christ. He gives it to you. And so maybe your family or maybe these people still won't accept you, but there's a peace that actually God our Father does. There's a peace that our church community, in understanding what Jesus has done about sin and shame, that they will accept me as well. And that will have to do until Jesus returns. And so my prayer is for you guys as a church that you would have that category, that you would have that vocabulary, that you would have that boldness to be able to confess sin, even the shameful sins, because we know that Jesus has dealt with that at the cross. So let me pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that in his coming to earth that he hung with tax collectors and sinners, that he was a person who lost face, that it was restored in his resurrection. But through that act, we, we as sinners, as people who uh, regularly sin, that we know that Jesus takes away the penalty of sin, he takes away our guilt, but he also takes away our shame. And so that we might, by grace, uh, live 
with a restored and an increased reputation before you, that we are your sons and daughters, no matter what we do as we confess them. And so we pray for boldness because that we would be a community that is overflowing with grace, just as that party was overflowing with wine. Uh, and there'd be sufficient grace for any of those sins that we might be hiding. And so we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.